I got the mini and it's in my bathroom now. And so like my apartment is long enough that I couldn't hear my home pod in the living room when I was in my room or bathroom, but like now it's in there and it's loud enough to hear when I'm getting sh- showering up or just getting ready. So I just have like music. I can just come in my apartment and just tap either one. And then they both start playing. They're synced. And then it's just like, it's awesome because I can hear everywhere in my apartment. I mean, it makes me feel much richer than, I, I, you know, I was, much more wealthy than I am. But. I was going to say, HomePod in the bathroom is, uh, that's how you know move. you've made it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's really, really cool though. I, I want to get like maybe one more for the bedroom, but it's just so nice to be able to just tap it, you know, and then you just got music in the whole house. Yeah. And then like when you want to stop it, you can just tap on your phone or whatever. It's just awesome. I love it. It's a hundred bucks too. And it sounds great. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a lot of fun. Man, 63 degrees. I can't see straight, but is it beer 30? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm so excited for the weather. Although, man, I've been snowboarding a lot this year, and it's like, I don't know why I took a couple years off of that, because it's just, it makes the winter so much better. Yeah. It's like something to actually look forward to. I'm actually sad thinking about the season ending, you know? Wow, I do not feel bad for you at all (laughs) i can't wait for winter to be over i can't wait for it to be summer yeah it's really nice i mean just having just i don't get a ton of like window light in my apartment so i can tell as soon as i wake up and come out (laughs) if it's like nice out and it's just it's great it's a great feeling the trees are gonna start filling in so i can't see my neighbor's uh, windows as much anymore (laughs) can walk around naked yep well i do that anyways (laughs) now no one will get a free show right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh but yeah man I, it was like well we had like a fake oh my friend was saying that there's like these this like whole fake seasons in new york thing and it always happens in march when everyone thinks it's like spring and it's not for like another like 40 days yeah and it's like weeks like this and then it's gonna get cold again but we had like a 52 degree day last wednesday I went for a run by the water oh man it is so nice yeah Man, March is great. March is great. You can like see the you can see the the summer coming. Totally, so. I agree. I agree. I like it. Uh, much better than like January and February too. Yep. Um, cool, man. We're back in the mics. Been a little bit. Been a little inconsistent this year compared to what we were wanting to do. But uh, we love we love doing the show. We're gonna keep doing it and try our hardest to do it every week. But um, uh, if you're new here, welcome. My name is Sam. I'm Ryan. And, uh, yeah, we like to just talk about whatever we're working on. So, uh, what have we been working on? Oh man, lots of stuff. We do have a lot of stuff. Um, I guess I can, I can kick us off. I've been working on a library that, uh, my applications are going to consume and I've talked and about my this. applications. Yeah. And your applications. <laughs> um, it does stuff like it handles auth. It sets up GraphQL for you. It, it launches like a Sura instance, um, the library piece of it, though, is how you integrate, like how you talk to your server instance. You need a GraphQL client. You need um, you need like a use auth hook to get the user. So that's what this this library provides. And I've been using um, TSDX to write this. And I got to say the, the the development experience has been, I, I've loved it. It's been phenomenal. I can that's awesome. I can write the library in you know its own VS Code window and then. Uh, I'll tab to my application and just develop both side by side at the same time. And like the rebuilds are fast enough where I don't really notice it. I'm working on like two different code bases with two different build tools. And, and also too, it's really easy to set up. So yeah, just want to say that, that yeah, absolutely loving TSDX. That's cool. I haven't been doing a ton of open source, like in the last probably like five months or something. And we were talking about this earlier and it was, it's just interesting. Like the last time I was doing open source a lot and we were setting up Mirage and all these new apps and stuff, we were just doing it by hand. Oh and yeah. Yeah. It's nice to not have to ever go back to that world. Yeah. Um, man, there's so much like that, that this, that TSDX does for you. I, I'm using this Jared Palmer put together this template. It, it's, it's like a template repository. Have you ever seen these? They're, um, they're like repositories that are made for you to like fork and then start using mm. on your own. Um, so kind of like a, um, 
like the boilerplates that they used to give for yeah, projects. Yeah, yeah, like a boilerplate. Exactly. So it's not something like you install mm-hmm. um, and your build tool sets up. You like literally fork this repository and then you just start editing it and, and that's it. So he has a, um, a boilerplate set up for monorepo that uses TSDX. And so... Oh, cool. And it just comes with like your library and then like your other library? Ex- exactly. Exactly. Oh, cool. There's like one that's like your React library and then the other that's like your utils library. And oh, then you cool. just edit it to name it what you want and you can add more or less. Nice. But man, the, the whole process is great. Like uh, Lerna takes care of, you know, installing and linking all your dependencies between, you know, every project in your monorepo. Uh, TSDX, you know, has roll up and TypeScript under its hood and Babel. It takes, yeah, I don't I actually don't know. I'm I guess, right? Everything uses Babel. I, I don't know. Right. The things that I've seen are, are TypeScript and roll up. Um, Got you. Under its hood to do all the building. And then the release process is really cool. There's a, a library called change sets, which I've never even heard of before this. Yeah, I don't know what that is. The way it works is when you're ready to release, you basically you run this change set command. Um, you can do like change sets versions and then that's going to pull up all the repos in your mono repo, all the libraries in your mono repo. And it's going to say, which, ver- which versions do you want to bump? Which of these are patch releases? Which of these are, um, uh, I mean, what are the other ones? Major, minor. And oh, cool. I think it can detect changes and, and stuff like that. So it can, um, it can't tell you like, oh, this is a major, this is a minor, but I think it can tell you, can detect like, oh, you've edited code here. Oh, cool. Um, so you do that, and uh, it creates a bunch of files on disk that are basically like, okay, what is this change? They're markdown files, and you go and open them, and you describe the change for each of your libraries in the markdown files. So it's say like, oh, you bumped your utils library to a patch release. Describe the change. You bump this one to a minor release. Describe the change. So you do that, and then you push it to GitHub, and then... This is all like TSDX, like magic under the hood. TSDX comes with a bunch of GitHub actions that then uh, read in these change sets. Also, too, like there's like this is part of change sets too. I'm just going to kind of blur the lines. Mm-hmm. But uh, a GitHub action runs that sees these, and then the GitHub action through change sets opens another PR that's like the um, that's like okay, here's your new version. And so it's all the docs you just wrote compiled into a change log. What? It's the NPM NPM versions themselves bumped. What? And then when you merge that PR, the there's an action that publishes on NPM. Yeah. What? Yeah. So it's really cool. So there, there. I was thinking about this. I was like, you know, there's a ton of ways to use GitHub Actions to release software. Like with us, we would previously we would do like a tag. And then as soon as you push a tag to NPM, we would, sorry, as soon as you push a tag to GitHub, mm-hmm. we would then publish that tag to NPM. GitHub action would build yep. and then publish the build and publish, to yeah. NPM. This is like, this doesn't happen until you, you, you basically merge your work into master and then those change set files exist as part of like your PR. So let's, let's, let me back up a little here. Let's say you're working on adding a feature. You would, uh, you would add the feature in your own PR. So you'd open a PR that's like adding new feature to my app and you would describe the, the changes in that mm-hmm. PR and then that would get merged into master and then GitHub actions would see there's changes merged into master. So it would open another PR to do the release. So then like I was thinking about it, I was like, Oh, this is usually different than our workflow because like our workflow, if it's in master, there's a version of it that's published. So with this one, there's like some lag, but I was like, this doesn't like, wait, uh, is that true? Yeah. Because you would, you could open, sorry, is that true? Our, wait, in this process, I'm if, describing. No, when ours. you said in our process, if there's something in master, then it's definitely published, but that's not, I guess, I guess head, right. Because we would, we don't publish until we make a tag. Right. Okay. Okay. So I guess this is the same thing then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's it a just lag had, between a feature getting in. And when it's published. And when a tag exists, yeah. And when a tag exists, yeah. I was I had this thought that like anyway, going back to this original thing, that like there's so many ways to to manage your releases and your publishing. But at the end of the day, it's freaking great. Yeah. That this is just all built into this framework and I don't have yeah. to think about it. And I don't really care about 
publishing if it tags aligned or, with your right right if it aligned with you, the way you happen to do it before yeah the fact that there i just get a pr from change sets that says okay merge this and a new version will be published by the way also too like dude just managing the change log and yeah and then you know the change log shows up as a text in the pr it's like you can't dude, you I just a, can't miss you can't yeah. miss anything when you use this yeah. process I have a 45 minute video on YouTube. That's like how I release OSS software because I was having someone take over an old project of mine and it's, yeah, it's just a pain in the butt. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. I was, I was really impressed. And TSDX is not react. It doesn't have to be react. It It, doesn't have to be. It, it, it doesn't. However, there is, um, the examples are all like react libraries and it does give you like a playground. So one of the things that scaffolds is like a, a playground that basically shows it mounting your React component. And then right. it gives you some like default tests. It's like render a React component and then expect true to be true, stuff like that. So I, I think right. it largely is used with React projects. I wonder if like Svelte library developers are using TSDX, you know? Yeah. Or if they're doing something else. Yeah, I have no idea. But I love seeing the general tools and stuff you know yeah um it's like the docs stuff like we worked on the ember docs add-on and i've seen this docusaurus thing pop up more and more like i think relay as a new site that just came out and i noticed it looked a lot like the other sites i've seen it's like built with docusaurus so it's cool that that stuff is being worked on and shared you know yeah the boundaries are getting clearer you know that's uh that's one thing that i would absolutely love is a, a doc site that yeah you know could like yeah i love just like build the api docs for me yeah give me some markdown to, to write stuff right because it's almost within scope of tsdx since if you're developing something you need to document it yeah by the way on, on that topic um another thing i've been doing is i've been kind of documenting these libraries and services as i've been building them and i've been using like the apple notes app mm-hmm. to to not like write like end user docs but to just take notes on like all the uh, the way all these things integrate like i mean just like, like in hasura you have like auth hooks you have an admin secret you have uh postgres databases that you can need to need to connect to postgres usernames and passwords so i've just been logging all that in a um an apple notes file so i can reference like you know how all this stuff is built and uh that that file is getting pretty pretty gnarly <laughs> lots of uh lots of branching like you know look at this you have to set up this look at this yeah yeah uh also it's just not really great for like technical writing yeah like code snippets and stuff like that so i have this next app that where like a lot of the stuff is being integrated so i was like i wonder what would look like if i just jotted down some notes in mdx so i don't know i heard next works well with mdx a lot of people that write next apps are using it for blogs and there's tons of mdx integration examples out there so i did that um and it's awesome man i have like markdown files where i write these notes in and you know one of the problems with writing markdown files and then getting them to display is always like you have to write a bunch of css to Mm -hmm. get like you know the markdown renderer is just going to transform markdown in html but then you have to mm-hmm. style it but there's a uh, tailwind prose tailwind typography mm-hmm. library and it gives you a class called prose and you wrap uh your markdown in that class and just boom, looks great everything's just styled it looks i mean it looks beautiful that's awesome so uh that you know writing markdown getting beautiful docs and then uh mdx so much you can do with mdx mdx gives you a component that maps to uh, a tag in markdown so you can say like when i encounter like a paragraph uh you know render like a p tag but you can also map it to a component so render like my component that renders i don't know a div and then a p tag something like that so i have all these uh tokens like you know production url staging url mm. password and I just create all these tokens and I, I have a component that just says like when I see underscore underscore staging URL, replace it with this URL. When I see underscore underscore app name, replace it with this name. And so then I can just write my docs as like kind of like, you know, like like abstract notes of how this all works. But then when I actually want to see like, oh, what is like the Postgres connection string? 
It's not like uh, a string that's like, you know, dollar username colon dollar password at colon host. Like the MDX file completes everything for me. And so it's it's amazing that I can get wow that I can get like the actual like there's a difference between like reading and writing these docs, right? Like writing, right, right. I just want to like write down all these notes, but then reading, I actually want to see, like, I don't want to have to do a bunch of math and, and right, back right. tracing to figure it out. So that's one thing that's been, uh, yeah, it's been awesome. It's been really fun. That's, that's really cool. I wanted to do a lot more with the Mirage site with the docs, you know, cause there's lots of opportunities for like interactive examples and making cool MDX components yep. where you can just set up a server and see it in a little playground. But yeah, MDX is awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's it's really, yeah. It's just really it's really easy. That's how. That's and how then I where have it. you published them? Yeah, I have them in a next app, and I'm pushing it. But it's like, um, it's not it's just like a URL or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And it, it reads in a bunch of um, configuration, so it's not something I'd want to make public because mm-hmm. um, it just has a bunch of like you know configuration like admin keys and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I think there is some future where. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there is like a publishable version of this. Right. So Right. And an easy way to get it. I liked how GitHub always gave you, when you use GitHub pages, they gave you a nice URL that mapped to your repository, you know? Mm-hmm. And so you didn't have to worry about, because I'm guessing with Vercel, there's no easy way to, like you just get one of those random URL strings, right? Or I guess you choose your project name. Yeah, you choose your project name. Yep. But it's like .vercel.com, which yeah. is, I guess is fine. Yeah. But yeah i haven't gotten to that that level that level yet yeah this is yeah. just more like um you want to see it for yourself and try it out and stuff see it for myself don't want to look at tons of like variable names and apple notes want nice code yep. formatting oh that's the other thing is like do the like mdx and react prism just like work perfectly together react prism is like a, a syntax mm. highlighter for mdx so code that's samples good. like code samples just look like code they look that's like code great. from your editor and it didn't. It wasn't a pain to import a bunch of CSS and all this file no. script tag to load the themes or something. I think that I might be loading like thirty different languages <laughs> or like one hundred and fifty different languages that I'll nice. never use. But I also right. don't care because right. the page is super fast and right. it shows my docs. Nice. That's awesome. Cool, man. Well, uh, I'm using the your next s3 upload i've finally gotten this dang image cropper it's funny like six months ago when i was like oh i have progress pictures my fitness app <laughs> that was gonna be done in a week but turn in a youtube series and there's just so much going on but i'm excited about it because there's some other gesture based stuff that i want to add to some apps but um the actual image cropper is is finally like working and the math is all right and everything so i wired it back up to your next s3 upload stuff and it's it's awesome man it's so awesome nice so that'd be fun to make a little quick video on that integration because it's really fast. I mean, I could make like, it should probably be like a three or four minute video, but it's just cool to show it off. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's fun. And then, so the other one you were going to work on is the auth stuff. Yep. yep. Yeah. The auth, the auth stuff is more, the next S3 upload, it's like you, you bring your own bucket, you bring your own S3 keys. Um, the auth stuff is more of like a centralized service that sets up everything for you. Right. Uh-huh. And you got to actually use it in a new app? Yeah. Yeah. And it, and and it worked for editing this podcast. Keeping, oh, yeah. Keeping notes on this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it worked. So That's it, awesome. Uh, unbelievable. That's really cool. You just go to the UI and you create an app and then you get a key and then you put it in your environment and then you get like a use auth hook and that's basically... Yeah. You don't even have to put anything in your environment. You get a React. So you go, you go to uh, this service... You create a new app, and it gives you um, basically an identifier, an app name, and then there's a React. This is like where the mono repo that I was talking about earlier comes in. You install the mono repo. You install the library. Mm-hmm. It's in a mono repo, but you mm-hmm. don't care mm-hmm. about that. You install the library, and you import a provider from the library, and you give the provider the name of the application, the identifier, which that, is public. Yeah, which is public. Um, the name of your application, the identifier from your application. And mm-hmm. then now this thing knows how to get all your users, how to log in users, how to do GraphQL queries. Uh, and you can bring your own, you know, you don't have to like, I'm not like giving you like a, a GraphQL client. You bring your own Graph, GraphQL client. So you use Apollo 
Now, how do you create a user? Uh, so when you install this library, you get a um, create user. You get a use auth hook, and use auth returns a create user function. And but doesn't that need to be protected? No. I mean, I can go to GitHub right now, and I can create a user. Oh, yeah. So there's no... I have yeah 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 yeah. Uh, one of the one of the things that um, that was fun to do this, and this is where like all the integrations come in. There are times where you're building a project, and you don't want to have anyone sign up. So mm-hmm. if you and I were building like a podcast mm-hmm. editor, I don't want to have just anyone sign up. That's just for you and I. Right. So one of the things with this with this library is you can disable user signups. Gotcha. And you can only add users from like an admin interface. Right, right, so, right. So for our like podcast editor, that's that's the case. That's what we'll do. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. And so when you try to create a user, you just get back an error that says like, you know, user creation is not allowed for this project. Very cool. Wow. That's awesome, man. Yeah. I want to try that, that out for sure. Yeah. We should we should pair on it because I, I love when you get to uh, test drive these things because. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, maybe we should document how this works. <laughs> the last time it worked out really well, actually. Nice. Um, cool, man. We did run into something interesting that we talked about with um, regards to, what was it, the auth library? Um, the Apollo stuff? Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit because I thought it was pretty interesting. I think we can summarize it. I mean, we spent a long time talking about it, but now <laughs> that I think we understand the problem. Yeah, so... I. You're like, I'm never getting that year of my life back that I, it sucked for me. <laughs> yeah. So I, I I mean, what's the best way to like kick this off? Like, I think it's developing, developing, uh, libraries is really hard because you have to link them to the app you're working on. I mean, the more interesting point really just to set the stage is that, uh, we ran into an issue where there was some code in an app. It was setting up an Apollo context provider, and then it had some code that was feeding into the UI. And you copy and pasted the code that was setting up the provider, moved it into the library, imported it from the library. It was all the same code. And then when you wrapped your app with the provider that was being imported instead of uh, the code being right there, it broke. Yes. And... Um, you know, it really is not much to do with it's the mono repo isn't important. You know, it's 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 the fact that um, the import paths kind of changed. And, it, you know, from just from the developer's perspective of working on this, it felt like one of those like referential transparency things because you just copy and you literally copy and pasted the code from one file to another and imported it like that's at a basic level. That should be something that doesn't change the behavior ever. Yeah, you would think. Yeah. But what we discovered was that because the code you copy and pasted, cut and pasted, was itself importing stuff from Apollo, and the stuff you were importing from Apollo stored some state on its module scope, now that you had this code spread across two modules instead of one, broke the code. So that was pretty pretty nuts in my opinion. Yeah. The so when we so when the code was in the application, it was importing the uh, Apollo from the application's node modules. And that's where it was storing the state. That's that's a module it was storing its state on. And we, we cut and pasted it to the library. Yeah. Now it was storing the state on the library's version of Apollo. Right. So that means any, any code in um, the application that was referencing Apollo had no state. So right. it was like working before, and then when we moved it out, it was no longer working. And yeah, yeah right. the referential transparency. Yeah, that's exactly what I would think. It's like all I'm doing is moving a function from one yeah. file to another. Yeah. And so, the, right, the problem is that the app was still importing uh, functions from Apollo and, and stuff from Apollo. And so your mental model might be like if I have import, you know, cache from Apollo, from, at, from string at Apollo slash cache, it's like an identifier. And then you move, you have some other code that's like import client from at Apollo slash what client. And, you know, you have the, your package JSON there. Those are both going to resolve to the same thing. But because of the way NPM works, they don't, um, you know, we've talked about this in the show before, but like both NPM and Yarn, when you install things, Yarn kind of tries to deduplicate things. But the reality is you have like a tree, your dependency graph is like a tree and, um, 
you know, like we were talking about by design, NPM lets you have different versions of the same dependency um, because they're the idea there being that they don't ever, you know, they never cross streams with each other. And so the code runs at you as you traverse the code path, you get in deeper and it's just using its little Lodash function. It doesn't matter if that thing is using Lodash 3 and then this other module is using Lodash 4. But in this case, it does because, well, A, when we run browser code, we're running it in a single environment with a single global context. And then B, like we were saying, the Apollo stuff stores stores things on the module state. So, you know, you can do that. Like, this is the way SWR works. When you import SWR, it has a reference to this cache object, which is just a JavaScript object. Let cache equal open close bracket. And that's just, that's not in React. It's not in anything. It's just in in the file. And so that's what's called module scope. And in the browser, the browser slots every file into a module map. And then it's always the same thing. But in this case, it didn't work because of the way that your library had Apollo as a dependency, your app had Apollo as a dependency. And those happen to result to different, different versions, different, different modules, basically. And so the, the things that were being done to the module um, scope in your library weren't translating over. So that was just that's a, that that is what took us a while to figure out why that was going on because yeah and that's like um <clears throat> it's kind of back to this idea of like global scope and dependency injection you know yeah. where it's a it's a good idea dependency injection is nice because it gives you that seam it's all the same it's all kind of related it's the same idea of like why you don't want to why at least in, in ember you were kind of discouraged from using module scope for this very reason because even if you didn't have this issue with splitting your code across libraries and applications, you would sometimes want to split your code and use it in an app or use it in a test. So as soon as you have like a second consumer of it, you want that nice seam where you can inject the dependencies instead of just having an assumption about what global scope you're you're running in, you know? Yeah. You know, a thought I had here is like, listen, in JavaScript and in Node, like module scope gets used for, for data storage. Like it's right. just, it just... It does. It's a fact of life. Yeah. Yep. Um, you, you can even say it's like a bad design pattern, but think about how React Context works. Like React yep. React Context is you store it in module scope and you export yep. it and things import it. So you can't. Right. You're you're creating con- you're calling create context outside of the context. <laughs> you're calling create context outside of the scope of a React application. Correct. And yeah, your module scope is how your things that want the context get it so they're states mm-hmm. state stored on modules mm-hmm. in javascript like you can't just you can't say that doesn't exist mm-hmm. i was thinking like okay and then you have like javascript resolution algorithm node resolution algorithm mm-hmm. that like require react or require apollo doesn't always require the same react like nodes module mm-hmm. nodes module resolution is going to tell you which module it returns that be that becomes a problem if you have state that you're expecting to be on that module because one thing requiring React and another thing requiring React could get two totally different Reacts. Yeah, and so and that happens common enough. React actually has a warning message about yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, your whole React app blows up when you try to do this. Yeah, um, or if you get in this spot. Um, and so I was I was really I was thinking like okay, so using require paths is not like that's what we're enough. using to key. The, our state right that we're using that as like a lookup for the state we want to store in module scope and it's not enough I, I was thinking like would a language that had built-in dependency injection like would that be like good here like would that solve this problem because in a way like in a way we're we're using we're basically using module names as a way to store state isn't that kind of what dependency injection is? Like, isn't dependency injection we're coming well, up with a name for something and then we're storing yeah. state on it and then we're, you know, we, we they invert, what is it, inversion of control where now you yeah, have like yeah. a thing that's responsible for creating the thing. So it's a, yep. a little more than just import, export, but. Yep, yep. Um, I think, no, I think you're onto something. I think, but I think the problem is a key is not enough information. So when you import something from string react string, it's not actually you're not actually able to specify as much information as you want because it's really that string plus what's in your package JSON plus, plus what's, what's in, your... in the package JSON of your dependencies and in the, the specific way node resolution is going to work itself out. That is all the information needed to determine where that thing is going to end up. Also, what's in your node modules folder? 
because yeah. you can have oh, stuff yeah. in your node modules folder. It might not be in your package JSON, and it will still resolve to that thing in the yeah. node module. So it's, it's yes, that's true. Yeah. Well, so I so we were talking about this too, and I think I think Deno tries to solve this. I remember Ryan Dahl talked to all right. Is yeah. It? Yep. Uh, talking about like his regrets with with node and npm and this was one of them that the 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 module specifier that you import or require from should have had an extension and it should have just been a pointer to basically a file and i think that's how deno does it and i think it does solve some of these issues hmm. the other thing is like my question was going to be like did this ever happen in ruby was this ever a problem well i was thinking about this in ruby and so the pro in ruby you don't store state in modules Instead, you you import modules and those modules just run. And those modules, when they run, I don't. Ruby doesn't. But what if you had a module that just said print? You know, puts hello. Like, how many times and, and multiple files import that? You know, use that or whatever. Yeah. Is that going to get run multiple times? Is could it be different versions of it? There, there's a few ways to require files. I, I think there's a load, and when you call load, that's going to run the code every time. That's mm -hmm. like like I think that's supposed to be like inline this code. There's mm -hmm. also require, which I think mm -hmm. will um, say, well, Parser. this thing has already been run. I don't need to run it again because like yeah. the idea in Ruby is when you when you import something, when you require something, you're modifying like global scope. And so yeah. like you're adding a class to the global. And so yeah. when you require something, you don't need to require it again because yeah. it's already been added. So and that's how NPM works, right? There's like a module cache where once you require yes. something, if that same thing is required it's not going to parse and execute again. So you wouldn't see a console log twice, right. let's say. Right. But but in, in in Ruby, you don't get, you can't do like let X equals, sorry, there's require. no let in Ruby, but you know, yeah. X equals require something and then X yeah. dot cache equals one, two, three. Yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. I, I don't know if you, I mean, I, I've never seen that. I don't think you can do that in Ruby. Yeah. But I think it, with in a normal, typical Ruby project, like a Rails project that uses Bundler, the you're not going to have the problem where you have multiple versions being resolved. It might even, does it warn you? Well, yeah. Bundler won't let you. With Bundler, yeah. Bundler won't let you install it. I'll say like, look, like I've, these dependencies, you need two different versions of Rails. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can't you do deal that. With it. You, you have to deal with it. Right. This is like, there's like a dependency mismatch here. But, but yeah. also in Ruby, the way you would like, even if you imported two different files that both create a class, those files then add that class to global scope. So the way that you would like do use like do like caching or sharing information is you would just append information onto that class. Um, mm -hmm. I'm using class example. It's just any mm -hmm. object, right? Mm -hmm. But you would you would add information to that class, and then like both files, both files might sorry both requires might get different code. Um, but still, it's going to be the same class in like Ruby's global scope. Mm -hmm. So let's say I do. Let's say here's a, here's a better way to describe what I just said. Let's say I have like a dot rb and then b dot rb. So two Ruby mm -hmm. files, and they both define a class. We'll call it person. So if I require and I require a, that defines this new person class in my global scope, and then I require b that defines a new person that defines person class in my global scope, which is already there. So those two things basically get merged. Mm. So files that require a and B can like communicate because they both have mm. this person class that they can modify. Gotcha. Where in node, you actually, you get back a different object. Yeah. It's yeah. a module yeah. from everything you require. And you might be requiring react in, in two different spots, but those might be two different modules. And so you right. can't, share right. state across that module and that's right. where this this prop comes in right 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 did that make sense i feel like i yeah I it, just it did, did not do very it did no my no no it did make sense i think the follow-up question is what if the two things happen to resolve to the same version of react would it matter i think it does not matter i think that's still two different modules it's it's like literally two different objects that wrap two different a module in node is like a, it's a thing that wraps the code and you would just so it has its own scope yes yeah yeah interesting yeah Oof, tough so anyway the solution was to use npm link which typically people are introduced to when they are developing a library and they want to test it out in their app without having to go through and build it and restart everything so you npm link it from your app you say npm link my library so that way your app is pointing to the thing that you're working on on disk. So if you make a change to the library, you can see it in your app. 
In this case, you do what you call reverse npm linking, but it's another feature of the npm link command, which you run in the library to make its React version resolve to the same React version from the app, which is what happens in production if someone were to just install. So someone who's using your library is never going to run into this. It was about your development setup and getting it to more faithfully reproduce the kind of environment someone would see if they were using your library in a real situation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, when you're developing the library, you do, you know, yarn install and you get all that projects, uh, dependencies, dev dependencies, peer dependencies installed. But when you're consuming that library and you yarn install it, you only get that project's dependencies ins installed. And so right. that project's not going to bring along its own React. Instead, it's going to say, I have a peer dependency on React. I expect to be used in a React app, but I don't need to install React myself. Right. And that's where the, the funniness comes from. Right, right. And then just briefly, we kind of talked about what we'd love, love to see here. Ideally, I guess if you're developing a library that has a peer dependency on React, it'd be nice if the system or the tooling could set you up with a development environment where you have to basically tell it. It, it it doesn't let you just install your own version from package JSON from the library's package JSON. It's like you have to point to it somehow. Yeah, it's like I'm using but peer this. peer dependencies are not really well supported right now. Well, I, I heard npm seven they're they're installed automatically or enforced or something like that. Um, yeah, I, I, but not in Yarn, and we use Yarn, but maybe it's. I'd be interested to see what the behavior is like in the latest npm version. I'm not sure if it would help in this pro in this area. Yeah, I don't think it would because it's when I'm developing my library, I'm like like in VS Code working on my library. My library doesn't know like, oh, am I just running on my own with my own build tool, or am I being consumed right. by another host app? Because I, I my dependencies should change in those situations. Like if I'm running right. on my own, I need all my dev dependencies, test runner, yeah, all that stuff. Um, I think ideally, and I, this creates 50 more problems, but I, I would want two node modules folders. One, that this is when I'm linked to another project. Mm -hmm. These are the node modules that I, I, that I bring along with me. That's interesting. So like if I'm being imported by an app, then I'm going to delegate my peer dependencies to that app. Yes. Yeah. That's actually, that makes a lot of sense. If I'm doing development myself, here's my node modules folder with right. all the node modules, like my build tool and my right. Babel right. and all that stuff. So interesting yeah um yeah what could Seems go wrong? reasonable what could go wrong <laughs> listen listen everyone my plan is to create another mode node modules directory it's gonna be it's gonna be fine you don't have to update that meme where it's like the black hole the heaviest thing <laughs> yeah. in the universe and then it's like two node modules <laughs> <Yeah>. directories <laughs> yeah cool well i'm glad you got it working and now you're actually getting back to doing the fun stuff yeah yeah that's that is true yeah nice all right, let's uh, let's jump into this segment, uh, this week's segment, tweet of the week. Nice. I think you got one, and I think I got one too. Yep. So why don't you? Why don't I go? You've been talking for a little bit. I have no idea if this is going to be interesting, but I just saw this uh, uh, Pete Hunt Floydophone on Twitter. He said, "Literally, never ever use Redux on a new project under any circumstances, even if it's what the team knows." I thought that was pretty spicy. I've never used Redux actually. I mean, I've gone through the tutorial. I understand. I've watched talks on it, but I've never used it. Yeah, and I actually like that. It's uh, if that's if it goes the way of the dodo in the next year or two, it's pretty nice. It's nice to just skip over things. Maybe that's me getting older, but like I never learned how to write a Webpack config, you know, and I didn't have to until Next started doing it for me. So now I still don't have to. <laughs> pretty sweet. So if I don't ever have to use uh, <laughs> Redux, that's that's pretty nice. I um, I think there's different levels of of using Redux. I think there is using Redux on your own. And then using Redux on um, a big app where a lot of developers are using it. Yeah. Um, so I've never used it on a big app. And in, in yeah. fact, the, the only times I've used it are a little toy. I want to learn this. Yeah. I I I, I liked. I there's somewhere in this this giant tweet thread that says mm -hmm. why, and I think he gives. Um. I think he gives some pretty good reasoning. I'm trying to find it, but I, I think it's very easy. So I think it's very easy to, to shit on Redux and basically come up with the example of, oh, someone's storing checkbox state in Redux. Yeah. But I don't think that's yeah. fair. That's not like putting like the best argument of, of why you should use Redux forward. Right. It's not. But when people did start coming out 
and using Redux, they were putting everything in there and they're like, that's how it works best. I mean, you could just see it. You could just see if you've been in the industry long enough, you know, these waves and people were just going crazy for it oh, yeah. um, and putting everything in there and, oh, it works best when you do that and everything. I remember talking to people at a conference about that. Yep. Um, so I think that's probably a big part of what he's pushing against. But uh, he has a follow up tweet here, which says most projects are served just fine with context hooks and something like use SWR. Beyond that, you should look at something like Relay. Hmm. But yeah, I do think there is definitely a need for a smoother path when you, uh, you know, when you start off hacking in React and you have your action, you have your actions, like your functions, which are the, the handlers for your events, and you're just writing them right in uh, in the render function, yep. you know, in, in, the, in the body of the component. And they're all closing over the local state and it works really great and it's awesome for prototyping. And then, you know, a week into the project, you have, you look at your component, you know, and it's five functions, which are like eight or 10 lines. And then you scroll down and you see the render. I mean, it's still great, but there should be a nice smooth thing where, okay, I can pull these out, still share the, the scope, the state somehow, but organize them a little bit better. So um, I'd be interested in seeing like what that looks like in all the different approaches that are possible. Um, yeah, you'll never. And like I've done use reducer before. We did X state. X state felt like a big, bigger change just because it's a bigger, it's a bigger change. The code doesn't look very similar. It doesn't look that it looks too different from the code you write just doing the normal basic react stuff that I'd like to see something that's like a little bit smoother, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, even pulling the functions out of the body, you know, and, um, and just having them at the bottom of the file would be a nice, would be a nice step. And I guess with a reducer, you can do that, but you would need, wouldn't you need like a high order function so that you call it passing in the, the state so uh, that the, the action creator, the, like the actual actions get the state, that, right? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, if you need, yeah. you can pull your functions out, but if they need access to the state, well, they definitely need access to the state. I mean, if they don't, then you're not doing well, it right, the beauty, right. The beauty of react is you just write a function that closes over state and it just rebuilds yeah. that function every time. So exactly. It's like, why move it Exactly. Out? I don't think I realized how, how nice, how, how many problems that particular thing that you just described solves until you do it yeah, and same. you realize um it's it's like a whole layer of plumbing that you just sidestep uh you know you have an effect that is just referencing some piece of state and it's like boom you know even though you're two function or three function scopes deep you still have a reference to that via closure and that that's it you don't have to pass it along you don't have to figure out how, how am i going to get it so that's really cool by the way just to add on to this this tweet uh someone says you know Okay, I'll bite. Why? Why? Why don't you want to use mm-hmm. Redux? And his response is, "It's fine to always express a state machine, but plain state machines don't really help you with common problems. And today, it's much easier to express plain state machines in modern React. So, mm-hmm. um, use Reducer or just yeah. or even like even um, state like yeah, use Reducer. Use Reducer is a pretty good example here. Yep. Yep. And then most of the time, you need to do something based on fetching data from the server." Redux Saga, Redux Saga, and Redux Thunk are the two most popular ways to do it, uh, but they require so much code and direction, and it still doesn't help you with many of the types of race conditions. So I thought this was this was like, yeah, this was a thoughtful response. Yeah, yeah. like this is fair. Like um, by the time it does help you, you end up installing these libraries that are so complicated. And I, actually, mm-hmm. you know what? This is like kind of my experience with X State. I, I know X State, like X, X State, definitely solved our problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but wow, like we had to spend a some time learning this whole new library mm-hmm. um, yep so. yep i like the way it forces us to think about it but then when you look at the code is it is it what you want to necessarily see yeah you know cool um very cool all right what's your tweet of the week uh mine is feature flags are a great way to decouple your release and your deployment and reduce the blast radius whether you build or buy consider a solution that is centralized and does not require deployment to toggle the flag so I thought nice. this was this was a just awesome tweet. First of all, I love yeah. anyone that that describes anything in, in DevOps and then says uh, reduce the blast radius because that's <laughs> yeah. that's exactly what it is when something goes wrong. I know that's great, great word. Yeah, so great word so this is this is talking about and this is something I've been I've been thinking about a ton lately, especially with all the services we use, which is a, a whole nother episode topic. But right. um, man, release and deployment uh, we think of is like the same thing, right? 
like we think of as a, you know, I'm pushing code yeah. to GitHub and it gets deployed and, and it's a release. But and it feels like a big deal. It's like, oh, are we going to release this? You know, are we going to deploy it? It always feels like there's a lot of things and software shouldn't really feel like that. Yeah. Ideally. Yeah. So if you can just deploy and you deploy your code and then release is toggling a feature flag. Yeah. Well, guess what? If you deploy your code and everything works like, okay, great. Your deployment was successful. And then if you toggle feature flag to do the release and something goes wrong, well, the rollback is you just flip that feature flag back and you're right back to the state you were before. Now, I, 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 this definitely adds complexity. Like you have mm -hmm. two code paths in your app. Anytime you have mm -hmm. a feature flag, you have, you know, an if and an else statement around mm -hmm. that flag. You also like sometimes features are really big that require like database migrations. So you're mm -hmm. basically have a database table that's like, supporting two versions of itself and we've we've, we've done this before um mm -hmm. and it, it's not as simple as just having a migration that runs when you have a deployment and a release so i, I you know, definitely gonna acknowledge that but mm -hmm. um i think there's i really like that that feature flags are the thing that gets at um teasing deployment apart from release right and i think that's really important yeah i agree that and that's something that yeah, it's not an obvious way to solve that problem. So the first time you yeah. hear about it, it's pretty cool, you know? Yeah, if you ask me why why would you use feature flags, I would I would have said something like, um, oh, I want to show my power users a exactly. feature before I roll it out. Exactly. I, I, would, I would look at it from a product point of view. Yep. Not exactly. not from uh, As a way to solve a technical problem, yeah. right? And yep. it really yep. is. I mean, it's yep. really impressive. So that's really cool. Very cool. Um. Cool. Let's wrap it up. I'll just talk about um, the, so this Egghead uh, course I've been working on. Um, I'm working on a, probably going to be about a dozen videos. Maybe we'll see how, how it goes at the end. That probably means it's going to be more like 16 or 18. But, um, 64. Right. A year. Uh, we're doing a, a Tailwind course on, for Egghead, and it's going to be um, a fun one where we build a Discord clone. So, uh, yeah, I just had a meeting about it today. And... Um, I'm, I'm getting pretty excited about it actually. So, you know, you and I worked on the discord clone like a week or two ago and just got, got pretty far with it just in one session, really one or two sessions. And, uh, it's basically going to be teaching kind of the fundamentals of tailwind, uh, but through building, um, a, a, a discord clone. And so, uh, you know, Adam and, and, um, Simon from tailwind labs have their videos going over on YouTube and they just released a cool course where you kind of learn tailwind um, going feature by feature. And so just to kind of mix it up and keep, you know, all the tailwind content interesting, uh, we're kind of taking the opposite approach because this is more like, okay, I'm ready to build an app. How would I use tailwind to do that? And so we're going to build the app together, learning tailwind as we go. So that's going to be something I'm working on and, sh you know, going to try to share and work in public as best as I can. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's fun. It's fun talking with, uh, the folks at Egghead about how to break it up and, where the sticking points are, where the stumbling blocks with people learning Tailwind and just thinking back about, yeah, like how much we've learned since we, we learned Tailwind, like, you know, the, the stuff with Flexbox, you know, so, so much of the, the stuff with Tailwind is, is just that it's, um, it's just CSS. And so if there's something you can't do, it's a common thing for people to be frustrated when they first get to it. Cause they're like, I came from bootstrap right and um bootstrap had like an answer for everything like they give me headings and, and colors and they give me forms and they give me um buttons and stuff and then um then you use bootstrap and you get frustrated by it and it it's you don't really know why so you get frustrated because you try to change things and it's hard to change but when you, if you remember first using bootstrap, I mean, it was amazing, Yeah, like panels and wells and accordions lists. And like you do so little and you get so much, right? Mm -hmm. So then you come to something like tailwind and you know, it's hard to understand right away why, what problem it's solving and what its responsibility is and what the scope of the tool is because it's different than bootstrap even though they're obviously trying to solve the same thing, they're trying to help you design uh, your app with CSS and write maintainable code. Right. Mm -hmm. um, 
But with Tailwind, you don't get a button, but you get over that pretty quick. You can build a button pretty easily. But you know, you don't have these layout primitives like, well, now we have grid, but you don't have columns and all these higher level things. And um, people are like, if Tailwind's supposed to be better, or like I'm learning this for the first time, like, then give me the stuff I liked about Bootstrap, right? It's like give me the button class, give me yeah, give you know, give me a the Bootstrap panel. that's easy for me to change because that was my problem. That was my problem. Exactly. Give me a modal. Like Bootstrap has a dang modal. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> There's never gonna be a modal in Tailwind ever. Um, but the modal in Bootstrap is awesome, and it looked great, and it animated. Like, and you only put like three lines of code in or whatever, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so, it's I'm just putting myself trying to put myself in that beginner shoe. You know, and you're like, why doesn't it have the stuff I like about it? But the way I'm thinking about this now, and we talked about this maybe like a month ago, and I heard this podcast talking about it as well. It was like talking about the state of CSS survey and why some people, why so many people seem to both hate and love CSS. And I think there's a couple of things going on here. And the main way I'm thinking about it now is that you have this, you have like the actual low level API of CSS, which is like font dash size colon 16 pixels and there's nothing wrong with that that's fine you can't really improve upon that like you know you can't really improve upon that that's like it's very declarative it's very easy and obvious um no one has a complaint about the word choice or you know there's there are low level complaints with how like the rendering the layout engine works and 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 floats and confusing z index stuff those are those are certain things but most people those are just not the main thing that people complain about when they say i hate css at least that's okay that's one class of things that people complain about but i think the larger thing that people complain about is the architecture and organization side of it because no one has a problem writing font dash size 16 pixels problem is when you come into a project and there's css files everywhere and you don't know what they do because css on its own while it gives you this nice declarative api that gives you ways to to style things in a way that's just perfectly fine it doesn't give you any guidance or um or opinions about how to structure and maintain your code and you know it reminds me a lot of how people used to talk about javascript like 10 years ago uh or even eight or seven years ago because people say i hate javascript and you say well why and they say well there's no not even modules in javascript and it's almost the same thing like javascript back in the day it was just one global scope and you just have script tags there's no dependency system there's no modules at all and so it wasn't as much with the problem of the fact that there was a function keyword instead of a fun keyword or, you know, the actual syntax was crappy or super verbose or just whatever. It, it wasn't that stuff. That was really the problem. The problem was when you look at a JavaScript application, the, it was a mess. It was just an absolute mess. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is for a lot of people's apps with their styles that they write. And even if you use something like post, uh, you know, SAS which tries to help you solve this architecture and organization problem a little bit with primitives, or you use a framework like materialize or, or bootstrap, you still have a mess. And that I think is the, the responsibility of tail. That is the, like the reason for being for tailwind, which is like to solve that. And it's funny because people look at tailwind and say it's such a mess, but actually (laughs) it's so much less messy because you don't come into a tailwind project and have all these hidden CSS files with rules that have no meaning to anyone anymore. And if you want to change something, you can. And then when it does come to the messiness part of Tailwind, where you get duplication and stuff, it's actually a really solid answer from Tailwind, which is like, you have better tools for organizing code based on the tool and framework you're using to build your app. So just use a React component or a Rails partial, and that's it. We've solved all the other things of co-locating your styles with your code. So you can just keep it organized the way you're organizing the rest of your code. Dave, you make a list, a list of something in HTML. It's friggin' messy. There's a lot of HTML elements that are duplicated across that list, but no one cares because we, yeah. we can create partials or components and we yeah. have a list item. It's actually a great point. Yeah. I mean, I just thought, I literally just thought of that. So it's a, it's a, it's a really good point though. Like no one, no one, yeah, no one ever really says like point. HTML is crappy because of this. Yeah, yep, it's true. But like we have all these BEM schemes, and you're coming up with selector names to target different things. Like it's ridiculous. Underscore underscore info underscore underscore <laughs> info two underscore. Never, never again. But it's really interesting, right? It's like thinking about it in this way because it's like, yeah. On the you you mentioned that on one of the previous podcasts, and and I remember when I was re-listening to that one and and doing the edits and show notes. Um, it was um. 
I was found myself nodding along and being like, I've never thought about this. And you're absolutely right. I guess my question here is like, can you, if this is a reason that you use tailwind and this is a reason that we, people like us love tailwind, mm -hmm. how do you explain this to someone that hasn't had that problem? Right. Like how do they have to go through with bootstrap? And and I do think there is like a, yeah, there's some path here where it's like, you're at a point where you hate bootstrap or you don't want to do that again because you feel it's too limiting or whatever. And you feel overriding. It just always becomes a mess, which it does. Um, so this is a, this is a way to solve that problem. And, and, and the reason it doesn't have a panel class or a modal class as part of it is because that introduces the problem again. So it's like defining the boundary and what problem we're trying to solve. We're solving the architecture side. We don't think that there's a problem. We don't think there's a fundamental problem with the styling side such that we need to provide you with an entirely new API. Actually, to be good with Tailwind, you have to be good with CSS. Yeah. And that's why I was thinking about this during my call today, where when you go back to four years ago or whatever, when you start learning Tailwind, you know, hadn't had as much practice with Flex. I wouldn't think to inline an SVG and then wrap it in a Flex and do middle align to get it to line up with the text. But now I do. But that's, if I ever was working on a project without Tailwind, I would now solve those problems the same way because I know what tools, what CSS tools I have at my disposal. And I would think about it exactly the same way. It's just that, you know, when you learn how to do it in CSS and then you translate it to Tailwind, you're just, you're just solving the co-location and organizational problems. Uh, So it's kind of like if you're teaching someone how to do the layout for discord with Tailwind and you get finished and they're like, I didn't really get that. What I would tell them to do is, step out of Tailwind and go to a code pen or go take a course on CSS Flexbox and just do it like there without anything else. So you are writing flex align, align items and display flex. Okay, I make this thing. And then you have all your CSS rules there and you're understanding how, you know, flex grow works and flex flex shrink works. And so you, you've learned it. And so now you come back to Tailwind and then you just realize you just get to apply them and that's it. So you don't have to go through any translation. You don't have to name anything. There's nothing else to do. And it just involves learning CSS. You know, you know, that's, that's a great tie back to how you started this, where you said it's, it's talent is just CSS. Yeah. And that's, that's a great going to code pen yeah. and seeing writing out the CSS is a really great way to show that. Yeah. I also want to talk about this a little bit in the course too, just because I do feel like, you know, Adam, it can be a little provocative at times, which I think is good because he, he kind of takes a, an opinion and, and, you know, takes a stand for it. But if someone, I've seen people on Twitter, the first time you come to the Tailwind site and it's like CSS best practices don't actually work. Someone can read that and think, oh, this person is like, you know, shitting on CSS in some way. But if you think about these two things, what he's really saying is that the organizational architecture side the best practices around there and around writing um, generic HTML that is targeted by specific CSS is the wrong way to think about it. And instead you want to target specific HTML with generic CSS. Um, so you want to flip the the direction there. So that's what he's saying, but it's very easy to, to see some people who talk about Tailwind and the phraseology and there's a lot of people who do already say things like css sucks i hate css i'm never gonna be good at it and then say oh okay we're not on the same page but yep. tailwind uh like unabashedly takes a stance that css is a pillar of the web and it's not going anywhere and learning it is going to be beneficial and help you out and that is how you have to use tailwind tailwind is an abstraction for people who know css so you can't avoid it learning css to use tailwind yeah. you have to learn it um so yeah just some interesting thoughts from the meeting but uh i'm going to try to sprinkle in some of those conceptual points you know throughout the videos but most of the videos are going to be just you know building out the, the clone i think it's gonna be fun that's so that's so interesting because i i just need to to go back to what you just said bootstrap bootstrap does try to fight css and it sense does that you get class btn or class modal. i know so they're saying css is not good they're saying you don't need it. They're they're saying yeah, not good. It's it's, not. Uh, exactly. They're they're saying they're saying use something on top that, and when you tweak it, you 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 change SAS variables in Bootstrap. You know you do this thing. You you don't learn CSS and learn how to do it yourself. You know the forms are the same way. Whereas Tailwind forms is like if you want to change this, you change it the way you would change a form if you weren't using Tailwind with just CSS. You know. Yep. 
Really interesting. Really interesting. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Also, I just want to say one more thing. Like, you might take away from this, like, if um, if you want something like Bootstrap, then Tailwind is not a good choice because you have to like rebuild all that. But um, I use I'm I'm an awful awful designer, and I use <laughs> Tailwind with uh, the Tailwind UI project that gives yeah. you all these things like modals and uh, panels and, and buttons. And I yeah, think, yeah. I think it looks beautiful and they're also really easy to customize. They're really, right. there's no more overriding CSS. They don't concede. They don't concede the organizational benefits you get from using Tailwind right. in the first place. Right. They embrace it. So I find for, for someone like me that, that understands CSS and knows how to use Flexbox and grid, um, mm-hmm. but is also just atrocious at anything design related that the, these two are just, I mean, they're amazing. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Actually. Now thinking about how both projects exist and then thinking about how I was just talking about the problems with CSS being the actual API, like font dash size colon and learning how Flexbox works as like the lower level API part. And then all the BEM and object oriented CSS and, you know, all the other stuff as like a way to solve the organizational thing. Tailwind really solves organizational thing. And then Tailwind UI really solves this other thing. So when people say, where's my panel or modal dialogue? Well, there, now you have an answer for that. Yeah. And that's, I think that's where it came from too, because that's what, what led to the creation of the project because people were loving the problems that Tailwind solved, but it didn't have the same domain as, uh, and, and responsibilities that it was trying to take on as a bootstrap did, you know, yep. bootstraps trying to make your modal for you. Tailwind doesn't. So, um, enough people were like, all right, I get it, but I want my modal back. And so now you can get it. <laughs> pretty interesting yeah um yeah so uh but that'll be fun so I'll, I'll i'll try to be sharing in public as i go um discord's fun because it has a mobile view to it but it's similar to you know the the desktop view so i think it'll be a good way to learn mobile and responsive design um but it's it's going to be able to share a lot of those components and make them work on smaller screens and bigger screens and all sorts of fun stuff so uh yeah keep an eye out for that you know, my Twitter is probably where I'll be sharing most of that stuff, but, um, hoping to have, hoping to start recording pretty soon actually. So, uh, yeah, should be fun. Nice. Well, we'll link your Twitter in the show notes. So awesome. People can follow along. Cool. Yeah. I'm at Sam Selkoff on Twitter and Ryan is at Ryan to tweets. So, uh, Oh yeah. I Ryan. I, did not get that one. I, I was a late, late sign up for Twitter. So. Yeah, I was too. I know some of the people I follow, they're like, sometimes post their tweets from like 2007 or something <laughs> you know i signed up like 2012 and then i didn't use it for like six years <laughs> you know or five years or something i didn't understand it i still think twitter has a massive onboarding problem but now they have clubhouse clones so who knows maybe they'll get better in the next the investors want something back yeah now, so we will see they just drop like six features in the last month i know hey, the stock is at a it's all-time high wow have you used any of them, by the way, spaces or newsletters or clubhouse thing? I, um, so the fleets thing I've oh, used yeah. and that has kind of been like a bomb. Even the people that are like, um, the, the people that I, that I think are really interesting that I follow. Yeah. There's, there's two people that post things other than their tweets. So a lot of people just post their tweets as fleets uh, and I'm right. like, okay, but I could right. just see this anyway. Um, they're just to get just to get more attention. I, I you know? it's just like it just feels like that just feels like really just gimmicky. But there's there's yeah. two people that post they get on the camera, they say interesting things. And so I was yeah. like, okay, they're like I always click their things when I see them. And, gotcha. and there was I, I don't have access to the the clubhouse thing. I think it's called spaces. Mm. Um, but I will see it when people I follow start spaces. And I joined one that someone I follow started, and there was like three hundred people in there, and it was just like silent and weird and so i think they were just like <laughs> testing it out um i also really like clubhouse twitter's like yeah twitter's too technical clubhouse is like a cool kids party twitter is like an awkward developer hallway <laughs> track where like everyone is introverted it's like their first conference and no one knows how to talk to each other yeah. it's like make sure you always leave a room for someone else to <laughs> slot into and then when someone else slots in there the rest of you open up again Span to make circle. sure there's always room it's like teaching <laughs> introverted nerds how to communicate and meet people <laughs> I, I i hope I don't know. Also, too, there's like it's different experience on the web and on the phone, and I don't like that because I just uh, I only think of like Twitter. I don't think of yeah. two different things. So, um, but you still you're still in the clubhouse. 
yeah i mean clubhouse is it's amazing they're they that's awesome they if you're not on it get on it it's it's unbelievable i mean i don't know how to describe it it's like um it reminds me of conferences where you'd go grab like a drink after a conference and you'd have yeah. like an amazing conversation with like you know four or five different people and you don't even have to contribute that much um, right that's that's but yeah that's clubhouse that's awesome cool cool thing all right uh let's wrap it up for the week and uh, hopefully we'll see you next week uh well i'm gonna be in florida from wednesday to friday so maybe yeah i think we could record early in the week nice um it is tuesday after all but um yeah i'm going to florida right when it gets yeah i was gonna say the weather gets nice and you're like okay see ya uh but uh thanks for listening everyone hope you're doing well and uh we'll see you next time see ya bye